Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris, how's it going? All right, Rachel, how's it going? It's going good. You got another story for me this week. I do. So do you subscribe to Netflix? Are you a Netflix subscriber? Yes. Are you going to talk about how they just increased their prices? Because that's what I'm thinking about right now. (laughs) I got an email and I was like, I'm so obsessed with Netflix and I will keep paying even if it's more expensive. (laughs) Yes, us too. Us too. I mean, it's our primary form of entertainment um, as well. I mean, we subscribe to a bunch of them now. You know, I remember back in the day, our family was uh, cord cutters. You know what I mean? We're not paying for cable. And we made a whole list of like the shows we watched and what networks they were on and what we could watch. Anyway. Before we go down that road, let me why I bring up Netflix right now is because there's a documentary on there called Crip Camp. Have you heard of it or seen it? Yes, actually. Didn't Kevin Williams talk about it during his interview with us? Did he? I believe he did. I think he did because I literally took it. I wrote a note to like watch it and then I haven't watched it yet, though. Well, that's I mean, if he did, that's something that's great to know, because I often talk about how you need to hear things like 22 times before you internalize them and use them. And so he may have mentioned it. And then I saw it on Facebook and then I saw it on Twitter and I was like, I got to watch this movie. And so I finally did, you know, uh, cuddled up with Melissa and we watched uh, we watched the whole thing. It was awesome. It was awesome. I just wanted to put a plug in for it. And I think it might be I could be mistaken here, even if you're not a Netflix even if you're not a Netflix subscriber, it might the whole thing might be on YouTube. I didn't go and look to see if it's there because we do subscribe to Netflix. But it tells the story, for those of people that are not familiar with it, it tells the story of people with disabilities that went to a camp together, Camp Jened, it's called, and that many of the people that um, participated in this camp then went on to be leaders in the civil rights movement for people with disabilities, and it kind of carries through that story. And it really resonated with me to hear the history and kind of stuff that happened before I was in this space. Do you know what I mean? So some of the the people that you would if if there wasn't this documentary you wouldn't know this sort of work ever happened or who the champions were and the 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 you've heard the expression standing on the shoulders of giants right that these were the giants that came first that were standing on their shoulders and so it was just really great to to hear about that and learn about that because i feel like this podcast you know and the people that support this podcast are in a social movement as well for change and so to see what worked and the 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 struggles that they went through the barriers that they overcame the perseverance that was involved in in what they needed to go through it it feels similar now and it feels like um a good shot in the arm you know what i mean that says yeah like if these people did it and we're now doing it we 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 can do it you know Sounds like it was really inspirational. Totally was. Totally was. Now, there was something else that sort of stood out to me is that there wasn't a lot of AAC use in it. You know, I wouldn't say there there's none. There was definitely. But there was there just wasn't a lot of like that. I don't think your big takeaway would be like, oh, AAC is super impactful. Do you know what I mean? It's more about the, the civil rights movement and the coming together and the inclusive nature that that comes out of it. But it did stand out to me because of my focus on AAC, how that wasn't necessarily an emphasis of this particular story. This actually reminds me, Chris, of um, Camp Alec. So we have talked about that on the podcast. I'm still trying to get Tina 
Tina Moreno, you need to come on this podcast. <laughs> we need to have her on. Um, but Camp Alec, for those who aren't familiar, is a um, short film, and it's all about the work at Camp Alec. Where is Camp Alec located, Chris? Do you know? Uh, Michigan, I think. Yes, I believe that's right, um, which is an AAC camp right? Um, where they teach literacy, which I mean, like all of our favorite things, Chris, all in one camp up in Michigan. <laughs> we need to go. <laughs> but anyway, I um, have the filmmaker actually lives in Los Angeles. And I had the opportunity to have coffee with him, you know, before the pandemic, when people like did fun things and had coffee with each other. Um, Chris Stout is the name of the filmmaker. And he's actually working on another like more feature length film that tracks um, a AC users. He was so inspired by the film that he created um, with Camp Alec um, that he wanted to pursue a feature length film um, all about AAC. So I'll have to check in with him and see how he's doing, um, what the progress on the film is, because I just you know, couldn't be more excited to have more AAC featured in mainstream media. Um, I think that's how we really move the needle with fostering acceptance, fostering understanding of what AAC is, and, you know, really showcasing, you know, how AAC can be successful, right? Um, I think that showing the same way that we have AAC users on the podcast, um, you know, showing what AAC looks like in, you know, teens and adults, I think is really important to, you know, move the needle for our field. Um, get more, you know, hopefully parents on board with AAC um, in the earlier stages, because um, I think that's a huge barrier to starting AAC is because not a lot of people know what it is and, you know, have seen it done. So anyway, that's what that reminded me of. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to mention it in context of Netflix, because I think one of the things that um, helps is that it is on a major way to dis distribute the, the content, you know? So when it's on some sort of website that you'd only hear about if other people talk about it, here it's on like a major platform. When I say Netflix, everybody knows what that means and what that is. It's a major tool in our culture. So putting something on a mainstream platform like that helps. So I, a, a question for you, maybe Chris um, Stout mentioned this, or if not, if you're going to you know follow up with him, is what is the distribution plan? Will it be out on some sort of major platform that people will be able to consume it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I've learned a little bit about the entertainment industry living in Los Angeles. Um, I actually have a good friend who's a producer and director, and he's done lots of cool things. Um, and it's actually really, I mean, obviously it's very competitive, right? Everybody's making films and everyone's trying to get them shown in film festivals and get bought by Netflix and all of the big distributors. Um, but um, everything I saw from Camp Alec was amazing. And the film was shot in a really, um, it was really well done. Um, and I'm excited because I feel like when, when Chris has a final product, I'm excited to, to see it because, um, everything I saw from Camp Alec was so good. So, um, I'm hoping for the best. I'm hoping that like Netflix sees that and is like, yes, we want that film. That's my hope. Well, maybe we don't have to hope maybe we can do something about it, right? I mean, that's part of the reason we have this podcast is to make this sort of change happen. We could help create a movement around like a petition, a some sort of um, 
I don't know, correspondence with this, whoever they decide they'd like to pursue first. Do you know what I mean? So that a distributor is found and that they know that they're not taking, they're taking less of a gamble in saying, yeah, we want to put our money behind this particular project. Uh, I find when there's an audience that already exists, then the people are much more willing to go for it, you know? Yes. And there would be an audience, right, Chris? Clearly. (laughs) Tons and tons and tons of people, I feel like. And you know, not just speech language pathologists, right? Like think about how big the AAC community is when you think about, you know, teachers and parents and paraprofessionals um, and of course, speech language pathologists, um, behavior therapists. I mean, AAC touches so many different people. And it's funny, the words you use, I, I think it's so really poignant is the community, right? That sort of points to the idea that it's established. And besides the community that's established, there's still this large potential, probably even larger than the community already, that it's not established. They don't know they need AAC. They're not thinking about it. Their experience maybe has been very limited. And so there's this huge potential for even a much wider audience and a wider community. And what better community to be, because it's there is no other community that's quite as inclusive as this one. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so Chris, who, who do we interview today? Who, who do you got for us? So this is a really interesting one. This is Julia James. Julia reached out to uh, me. She was um, comes from the general ed world, actually, and she was having conversations with someone who does another podcast, podcast that I've participated in. Carl Booker is his name. And she just recently got, in her neck of the woods, she got a new job. Her job, I forget the exact job title. She'll mention it here in a minute in the podcast interview, but it's about like the uh, facilitator for online instruction or director of online instruction, specifically for students in special education. And when she was talking to Carl about this, she's like, do you have any contacts on who I could contact about who I might brainstorm about, like, what would good online instruction look like for someone in special education? And he was like, I know somebody. And that was me. So she said, hey, Carl said I should contact you. Would you be willing to to chat and kind of talk about what online instruction looks like and absolutely. Do you mind if we record? Let's do a podcast episode. And so she's like, yes, let's do it. So that's what you're about to hear is sort of this, um, not really an interview with Julia so much as a back and forth and a, a coffee talk discussion about what online instruction looks like for students with disabilities pandemic wise, but then beyond pandemic wise, like where do we go in the future? So, so without further ado, this is my interview with Julia James. Here at Talking With Tech, we're excited to partner with Smiles for Speech. This organization provides children with special needs living in impoverished communities the intervention and resources needed to help children reach their full potential. Smiles for Speech aims to provide long-term sustainable solutions for children worldwide. Their mission is to distribute educational materials, provide training to teachers and families without access to appropriate intervention, and to create global awareness on the importance of therapeutic services to support children in need. With your help, Smiles for Speech will continue to broaden their reach in assisting children living in disadvantaged communities gain access to the therapy services and education they need to thrive. To support this organization, go to smilesforspeech.org to learn more about this organization and to offer your support. That's smilesforspeech.org. 
Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Julia James. How's it going, Julia? Going great. Thanks, Chris. So, Julia, you reached out um, via email. Let's let's talk about a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I am a part of a new position in a school district in Texas where I'm supporting special education teachers with uh, supporting the needs of their online students. And it has been a very interesting start. And I'm so thankful to be in a district that recognizes the need to support their special education students with online learning. Um, But at the same time, I'm just trying to figure it out as I go. So. Julia, what's your background? Like, um, are, are you a speech therapist? Are you a classroom teacher? Are you, are you are you administrator? What's the, what's your, how did you come to be in this new position? Congratulations, by the way, because it sounds like that's an awesome position to have. Thank you. Um, I, this is my 11th year in education. I've had a wide variety of experiences, mostly in the classroom, um, but tutoring and teaching and the public and private schools um, in special education and then also the university level as well. Um, But uh, most recently I was a special education teacher in the district and um, I have my master's in instructional technology. And so I felt like it was a good fit to move into this position. Awesome, awesome. So your entire role, let's talk about that. So what is the role of this new position that was crafted? Well, I'm kind of, like I said, trying to figure it out as I go, um, because I don't exactly, while I am part of the special education support team, and we have teachers who support the math component of special education, the reading component of special education, our dyslexia program in special education, uh, our behavior parts of special education. This was like a new person on this team, on the special education support team, but um, it doesn't exactly fit with that because I'm not only supporting those academic teams, but I'm also supporting our special special education programs like early childhood special education and our life skills programs as well. And trying to encompass all of that, supporting all of those different different, um, facets of our special education program has really proved to be challenging and but my main role is to, to focus on the teachers and what they need in order to support their students in special education. It sounds really exciting. I, I have to concur with what you said earlier about um, being fortunate to be in a district that has recognized this. And it sounds like, tell me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like maybe they were leading in this direction even before distance learning and the pandemic. I mean, is that would that be accurate statement or was it something that was really illuminated during the pandemic? That's a good question. And, you know, I'm not sure. I do know that um, they are thinking that this, for some of our special education students, online learning is actually working out really well. Um, and so we, I think the thought is, maybe, while it may not have been a thought before the pandemic, it's definitely something that I think will continue even after the pandemic. So uh, that's one of the reasons that they, I think, created this position is because for some students and in some situations, it, it does work. So. So Julia, again, uh, kindred spirits here is because this is something I've been trying to shout from the rooftops since March, um, when we all went down into lockdown, you know, the March of 2020, when the pandemic first struck, is that I asked, trying to ask every, you know, general ed teacher, special ed teacher, everyone I know, when you think back to emergency distance learning from March until June, 
you know, before we were started wrapping our heads around like, oh, the entire next school year might be like this or in some sort of hybrid model. Um, did you know any students that did better? And I have yet to meet a teacher that has said no. Everyone is like, yeah, actually, now that you say that, there's some kids that did do better. It was like, yes. What? So now I have one of my greatest fears as at the time of this recording, Julia, is that we will go back without learn, learning our lessons. And it sounds like your school district is... Um, has already learned that lessons and is making that those strides to, to, to make sure that we're not, we're going back to better, you know, we're learning from those mistakes. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. And I think that, um, I think that that's important because I think that online learning does have a lot of benefits for a lot of students. I know 100% online learning and the, the shift that we've had to make and so quickly has been very challenging for our school systems and teachers. But like you said, that that shouldn't necessarily overshadow some of the benefits that we could carry forward from this experience for sure. So how did you hear about, you know, how did we get connected? Let's talk about that. And what kind of questions do you have? Like what's kind of rolling around in your mind in these, these, these challenges that you're facing? Sure. So one of how we got connected and the challenges that I'm facing are actually very connected. Um, one of the things that I'm really struggling with is because as we've said that this has been such a new development, there's not a lot of information. There's not a lot of research. You know, there's some studies that have been done to compare, you know, pre-pandemic and now during the pandemic, the learning loss and things like that, but there's not, um, a lot of really good research and published information as far as what are the best practices for online learning. And so I've been doing a lot of research in that. And then those are, you know, fairly easy. You can, you can find some information on that, but online learning for special education, best practices for that is like a smaller area that I'm struggling to find more information on. And so recently I attended um, my region's district learning conference, I'm sorry, digital learning conference. And um, Carl Hooker was the presentation, the, the keynote speaker there. And he's a great presenter and shared a lot of great information. And I emailed him afterwards and said, you know, this is kind of where I'm at. I'm looking for more information on best practices with special education online learning. Do you know anybody or do you have any resources to share? And that's kind of just been my mode. It's just like, looking for information. So I've been attending a lot of professional development, trying to figure out, trying to get the information myself and then kind of um, composing it in a way that I can provide it to teachers in order to support them. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, so yeah. Julia, just to give you, cause we don't know each other that well. Um, right. So I work for a public school district in Northern Virginia, and um, I was one of the founding members of our assistive technology team uh, 10, I don't know, many years ago. Um, yes. And most recently now I'm the assistive technology specialist. So I kind of help guide our team of assistive technology professionals um, to help again, to kind of do the same, same thing in, in, in the more broader sense of all of education and, and including special education, how to make, how to design that instruction so it's more inclusive and so that it's accessible to everybody. So if I can help in any way, I'm happy to do so. So what what kind of what what kind of questions do you have? So yeah, I guess I'm I am looking for resources that can help me understand and then help me communicate like what are the best practices 
in online learning for special education students and like how that relates to research. And I know there hasn't been a lot of time to do a lot of research at this point, but um, you know, what can we say, what can we be doing to make sure that our special education students are still experiencing growth during this time of online learning? Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I'm struggling with is like I said, because I'm part of our special education support team, um, I'm the only one with this role. And I don't feel like I necessarily I do fit in with the special education team and they're, they're great, but um, I also kind of fit in with the like technology department and I'm trying to like bridge some connections there. And that's been a struggle, but trying to figure like network, like and share information um, about like, trying to stay current on some of these things, because as information is, is provided, I want to be a part of it so that I can support teachers. And then my third and challenge um, is just supporting teachers who are so overwhelmed, they don't have a lot of time and figuring out a way to support them without taking their valuable time. Um, those are my three main things that I, I'm focused on on a daily basis. <laughs> okay, so um, in, in some context, like the people who listen to this particular podcast, Julia, they'll know me and my co-host as people that like to coach people along. So I would ask you a awesome. bunch of reflective questions and, and have you think of it. But in this case, if it's okay, I'm just going to consult, meaning I'm just going to tell you some things to put you in a, in a direction. Hopefully that gives you some stuff. I mean, I'll ask reflective questions too, but if it's okay, um, sure. I'm just going to say, here are some things I think you should do. <laughs> That's okay. Sure. That sounds great. I love it. So a quick shortcut there, I'm going to start with that second question that you had, because I feel like that relationship is uh, uh, the most important of everything you just mentioned there. It's the it's the first domino that you're going to kick off in your whole um, career in this, in this particular job. Um, and that is the idea that there is a relationship between technology and learning. Of course, we knew that, right? I mean, and it sounds like your school district has, has embraced that. But the hidden relationship that a lot of people don't really recognize is the history of, of where the technology comes from. And so what I mean by that is, um, I bet you have a, a, a smartphone, Right, Julia, would I be correct in that? Uh -huh. Might you have an you iPad would, yeah. or a mm -hmm. tablet, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, might you have access to a Chromebook or some sort of desktop computer, laptop computer? Yes. Is that laptop or desktop or Chromebook touch enabled where you can touch the screen? Or do your kids I have had, I don't currently have that, but I have had that in the recent past. But your phone is, right? And your iPad yes, is. And many definitely. of the technologies we use are touch enabled, right? Or touch screen. And I yes. like to reflect back, like back, if we were having this conversation back in 1985, you know, um, you think we wouldn't have these touch screens that we all have now except you would if you were in special education. Special ed students were the first kids to have touchscreens. And I can go on and on and with examples there, Julia, like for instance, uh, are you Google district? Do you use Google? Are you familiar yes. with Google Docs? Mm -hmm. And are you familiar yes. with the, the voice typing feature of Google Docs where you can, right? I'm sure you yes. are in special ed. This has gotta mm -hmm. be something you've, right? But who are the first people to use voice dictation? It were people that had difficulty with their hands, right? And couldn't control the keyboard or had difficulty with the mouse. That's why they used the touchscreen um, is that they could, they could dictate the words and it would type out there. And now it's something, I mean, I bet you used it today when you were texting somebody, you know what I mean? You, you hit the little record button and it just records right. um, mm -hmm. and it just types out the text. And 
there's more examples like uh, not just high tech, but like um, flexible seating. Like I bet your school district has started to embrace flexible seating and at the elementary level, definitely, and maybe middle and high school. But who are the first kids to have those like wobbly discs and and um, and the beanbag chairs? It were students with disabilities. And so, um, again, I could go on with examples, Julia, but I feel like that's an important relationship to to embrace and to explain to your um your colleagues in both the special ed world and in the, um, the the technology world, your instructional technology people, is that oftentimes innovation um, and the technologies that are used by students with disabilities leads to something for the for everybody else, you know. Um, and so, with that in mind, um, let's talk about the technologies that you do have in place that are sort of. Um, tier one technologies just for everybody. Do you happen to have a, a text-to-speech tool, for instance, that's available to every student? Well, let me ask it a different way. What's your text-to-speech tool? Like if, if you ask a fourth grade teacher, what's your text-to-speech tool? Would they know what that is and how they... That's a good question. And I, I don't think every fourth grade teacher would be able to answer it. And if they did, they wouldn't all have the same answer. I think they all use various Chrome extensions. Um, I don't think that necessarily everybody uses the same thing. I think that as a district, we have provided a couple of different ones, like read, write, uh, read and write. Um, like we've provided some training on those. But I don't think as a district we've invested in like one particular one that we're like, okay, everybody's going to use this. So so that might be, again, in this consulting role, that's something that we kind of embraced a number of years ago is that we said um, there are tier three tools that would be specific for individual students, tier two that might be for group, and tier one that are for everybody. And we want to make text-to-speech. There's so many students with disabilities um, with such a wide range. When you, when you say special education, there's such a wide range of needs there. Um, but one of them that is sort of common amongst many of the disabilities is needing text read out loud. So we want, and, and then you have the whole pocket of students that are not even eligible for special education, but still need the text read out loud. You know, um, maybe they are, they have been not been diagnosed with dys dyslexia, but they still struggle with reading. Um, so maybe, or they have difficult, they, they continue to struggle with reading. I think um, everybody struggles with reading. It's just how much to, and to what degree, you know? Um, so text-to-speech can be a real powerful tool there. So thinking of some sort of text-to-speech tool that is just universally available to every student, um, and that is sort of our goal. Maybe it's read and write. Maybe it's another tool. It doesn't have to, I mean, you pick one. Mm -hmm. There's that doesn't mean it would work for everybody. You might still need another text to speech tool as a tier three solution for some students. Um, mm -hmm. But this way, it'd be everybody sort of on the universal playing field. Like, yeah, this is just something that everybody uses all the time so that your fourth grade teachers can start to use. I've just picked fourth grade all the time as an example. Sure, but yeah. I mean, any any general ed teacher could start to to use that in both in-person learning or in online instruction. I mean, most of the kids that are going to be in line, online instruction is, I think is a, as a, just a general good practice or better practice would be having access to some sort of text-to-speech tool. So when they come across a word in the text that they don't know, they can listen to it and go, oh, that's what that word is, you know? Yeah, that's good that advice. Sound? Yeah, that's, that's good. And I also like, um, we have a fairly large district, so I can see how providing thinking through some of those like training pieces and making sure that everybody was on the same page I think that that might be a little bit 
challenging, but at the same time, then it takes the burden off of the special education teachers because everybody is familiar with that that tool already, right? So they, it's not the special education teacher's job to go in and train on how to use that. So I can definitely see the benefit of that. 100%. And by making it universally available um, to every student. Now, I guess um, your, your your barrier there, Julia, will be there's, there's a cost involved with that. You know, this is not, right. there are free, like read and write, for instance, is free. You could get that on every computer for free and it would provide the text-to-speech feature uh, for free. Um, it just, the premium features are what you have to pay for. But anyway, right. you could get text-to-speech for free. The other mm-hmm. hidden benefit there is that, for students that have accommodations, your your special ed staff will be teaching them and showing them. But if it's available to everybody, they become the rock stars that help their friends. Oh, what do you? What's that little purple puzzle? What are you using over there? You know, like or when they're talking to their friends on Discord, playing video games later on in the day. You know what I mean? They can mm-hmm. have that conversation about. Oh, I just listened to the text. What do you mean you listen to the text? Oh, I used a little purple puzzle piece. Yeah, you have it too. Did you not know it's on your Chromebook? What mm-hmm. it is, you know what I mean? Now you get the, it's not all the burden of a teacher having to do it. It's this um, authentic experience with students exchanging information together and helping each other. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. So something else to consider there is that that text-to-speech only works when the text can be read out loud, right? Um there are there. I'm sure you've experienced PDFs that are locked, or websites that have a, an image, and you hit a play button, and the text won't be read aloud because it's not accessible. And that is often on the teacher who has created the experience or provided the material to the student, and they have and they're providing it in a way that is inaccessible. So a very inexpensive solution, but it, again, it's another paid solution, is um, especially if you're a Google district, is something called Grackle. If you're um, if you're familiar with if you're an MS uh, an MS like a Microsoft district, uh, they have built-in accessibility checkers as well. But this Grackle tool is something that our IT department purchased in our neck of the woods. It didn't even come from a, a assistive technology or or um, special education. They just recognized, hey, we need to make sure our tools that we're putting out are accessible. And so what Grackle does, it's an accessibility checker. So imagine a teacher puts together a Google slide presentation. They're going to put it up in your learning management system for a student to get, you know, in the online environment. And they're going to be using this text-to-speech tool. Well, when they make the Google Slides in the same way that you would like, you'd make sure that um, everything is spelled correctly. You you make sure that it kind of the curriculum, the the content is accurate. You run through this kind of little checklist in your mind as a teacher. Is this is is what I'm putting up good? You know, we could it'd be a little bit of a training element, but it's a can we hit this little just like you hit the spell check button? Can we hit the accessibility button? It'll run through the accessibility checker, making sure that the students that are going to be accessing it can actually access it. And as teachers do it, um, they will be annoyed because they'll, it'll catch all these sorts of mistakes and they'll have to go back and fix them. And they'll be like, do I really have to fix them? Yes, you really have to fix them. Because once you fix them once, one, you have the material then, like it's done and you'll have it for years to come. You know what I mean? Yes, you always tweak your Google slides, you tweak your, your materials, but you'll mostly have it done for, 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 for infinitum, you know? Um, and then the second thing is the next time you make a Google slide, 
you'll be like, yeah. well, oh, I won't make that mistake oh, again. Not going to do that again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you train yourself to become better at accessibility. And I'll throw one last thing out there, Julia. Some, sometimes teachers are like, yeah, but I don't have any, like in my online environment, I don't have kids with disabilities. And I often say a couple things. Well, you might not, um, but you might next year, you might tomorrow. If we're working in public school tomorrow, someone who might come in who might need it. And third is again, with that like dyslexia population, it's so often underdiagnosed. You might have kids that need it and you don't know they need it. And in an online learning environment where you might have um, like now with our distance learning where everyone's doing that more, more frequently, um, the parental support and the supported home oftentimes teachers don't know who's going to be supporting them at home. So maybe it's like grandma who is nearsighted and needs to have the text read out loud as well. Um, or maybe the parent has some sort of disability where they need that as a, to be accessible. Why not just create it this way? And I, I, again, I'm not, you know, I don't get paid by any of these companies, you know, it's just, we've had um, good success with Grackle as a, as a tool. And it's really inexpensive as far as an accessibility checker, you can get away with the free versions. And of course, there's other stuff you can use, like I said, the MS tools, but that's something I would recommend if you were in a Google environment. Thank you. Yeah, I've heard of Grackle, um, but I haven't looked into it a lot. So that's good to know. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. So in the next piece of, um, I, I wrote down a couple of things that I've been thinking about since your email. Um, something that has helped us a lot in our neck of the woods is not necessarily an immediate solution for you, but it's a long-term solution to prevent things in the, in the future. So um, somewhere along the line in your school district, someone is making choices about the digital textbooks, the digital materials. Are we choosing Pear, Pear Deck or are we choosing Nearpod? What's going to be our tool that we're choosing? You know what I mean? Those sorts of either technology decisions um, or textbook decisions or both. And in my particular school district, those are two separate committees, but I could see them easily being one committee in, in your neck of the woods or wherever, you know, people listening are. Um, and that's something we have done in maybe the last two or three years is made sure we had a seat at that table. Make sure, Julia, you are at that table so that when they are choosing the, the technology tools and they're choosing the, the digital content, you can run it through its paces and help other people run it through its paces and go, well, okay, is this going to play nice with our text-to-speech tool? Um, can the text be magnified so that um, our kids with visual impairments can zoom in? You know, um, uh, Yeah, there's video content here. Is there captions, you know? And if we do that in the in the selection phase, rather than this committee has chosen something, they're putting it online and then they're going, hey, Julia, can you help make this accessible? Well, you're, you know, you're in a lot more worse, and all of your special ed teachers are in a lot worse position to try and make something that's inaccessible accessible. But if you make that 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 selection, imagine you're sitting at that table and you got that vendor there going, all right, uh, committee, yeah, right, we've got the best uh, digital tool on the planet. You know, you should use this. And the Julie at the table goes, yeah, but is the text, can, be, can it be read out loud? And it can't be, you know, or, well, it mostly can, but not here. Or, you know, no, we didn't really think about how the Zoom feature or, um, no, actually, some of our animations are animated GIFs and we don't have those captioned or whatever. You know what I mean? Whatever the thing you bring up 
that immediately bumps it up on their development cycle because your school district has this bag of money sitting on a table right in front of them. And you have now given them a reason to make that change as opposed to after the fact where your school right. district has already forked over the money. And now they're like, yeah, uh, sure. We can mad captions. We'll get right on that. You know, like there's not as much impetus when the money has already been been exchanged, you know? So right. my, my advice to you is either you or, or other people from special ed get on a committee like that um, to start make that a systemic uh, change so that even if you move on two or three years from now, maybe this is not your whole future career, there's that lasting, like, what's the format we use to select things? Well, one of the things we use to select things is, is it accessible? And what does that really mean? You know, what does that break those questions down into, a, into a, its, its segregate, segregate parts? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I will look into that. Do you think you, you have a shot at that? Like, you think those committees exist or? Um, I definitely think that they exist. I have no idea when and where. So I'd have to do some research about that. Um, but I think it's possible. Yeah. I, and I, I say that thing about um, if you were able to get yourself on that committee to help shape what those questions are when people are looking at those materials, um, because I've had the growing pains over the years, Julia, of getting people all trained up. We knew the right people to ask the questions. Man, we we spent so much time buddying up to them and be, becoming like, you know, the connections that you have. And then they'd retire, they'd move on. And we had not created this this protocol, if you will, with inclusion in, in mind. And really, in today's day and age, there's never a better time. Like, this is the time to, to it's on everybody's mind. Inclusion and equity is on everybody's mind. Um, and I feel like there's more people listening than ever. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so I mentioned captions, but I feel like that is another kind of low-hanging fruit that we could help teachers with. And there's a lot of technology out there that uh, will do it for them, you know? So if I'm going to make a talking head video that I'm going to put up explaining my math problem, and I'm going to put that up in my, my learning management system for my online learners or for my in-person learners, you know, as a resource. Again, that's another example, Julie. I remember back in the day, we um, uh, I like to tell the story of a teacher that came to me saying, Chris, this is probably, oh, maybe maybe 15 years ago, Julia, but uh, someone came in, this was a high school teacher that said, uh, uh, middle school, uh, I wrote this IEP where all my math lessons have to be recorded. How do I do that? You know, it's like, well, we have interactive whiteboards. They have recording features. I don't know how to use that. Well, we can show you how to do that. He, he ended up to teach this, this uh, algebra teacher how to record his lessons. All before Khan Academy, Julia, this guy was recording videos, putting them up on his classroom, and then he put them front-facing so anyone could get them, and he just watched all these ticks happen, not just from kids in his own class, but other kids around the district, around the country, state, like because because now it's just like that's how you do it right you make a video you put it up and you can slow it down pause it you can do this all this stuff so all that to say is as teachers are now comfortable making videos let's get them making videos with captions um there's apple clip uh apple clips is an app i don't know are you familiar with that particular app mm -mm, no so if it's it's called the Clips app, and you know many teachers have have iPhones, but there's other tools that that you can research that just provide captions as you're recording them. Apple Clips I happen to like because it allows you to edit the captions, you know, before you hit the publish button, you know. Um, 
uh, I with distance learning, what are, what's your distance learning platform? Is it Google Meet? Are you using Teams? Or are you using? We're using Zoom. And I know Zoom does have that captioning. And I feel like the Zoom captions are pretty good. They're not 100% like anything else would be. Um, but I, I do think that the Zoom captions are pretty good. So I think that is huge. And and then praise teachers that are doing that. You know what I mean? Right. And providing that that accessibility tool. Again, a lot of people would be like, well, why do I need to have captions? I don't have any kids with hearing impairments. The You're asking for research. There's clear research that, that captions help people become better readers, uh, especially our ELL population, you know? Um, in fact, because this podcast is uh, is uh, about specifically about AAC, um, augmentative communication, we have an AAC user that recently was on the podcast, and he was saying, we were talking about captions, and he was like, that's how I helped learn to read, is I turned the captions on my TV. So, um, so it helps such a wide range of people, because you have this idea of dual coding. You're hearing the audio, and you're seeing the text at the same time. So as teachers, it seems like, well, yeah, anytime I play a video, I turn it on, and anytime I record a video, I, I, I make sure it's on. And this is the part that a lot of teachers might miss is because we're asking so many students to make videos and that's a part of the design of uh, how they can express themselves. Let's ask them to do that as well. You know, students, part of my rubric for what you're asking you to present is, is your stuff accessible? You know, is your stuff, that could just be simply you know, can, did you provide captions on your video? Let's start there. So that the next generation doesn't have to play the catch up you and I are doing, you know? We don't have to yeah. train a whole bunch of teachers to do it. They just grow up knowing that's how it's supposed to be. Yeah, that's a great point. I have never considered that. Like, yeah, it doesn't have to be something that you learn later. It could be something that we're teaching kids now. Exactly, exactly. So one last thing that I wrote down and then let's just chat for a second. Um, sure. Um, uh, so I mentioned AAC. Uh, everyone who listens to this podcast is going to hear me say this a thousand times, but um, one of the things that we've learned specifically about AAC, but I think it expands uh, even more, and I think it also branches into your what you're talking about, like your general ed technology people, mm -hmm. um, your instructional technology people. It, our neck of the woods, um, the the role, the name shifted from in, uh, technology resource teacher to instructional facilitator for technology. And I'm curious, those people in your schools, what are what's your role? What's what's their job title that that like the people that help the teachers with the technology? Classroom technology designers. Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, I'm all about educational experience design. So they are designing the experience, right? Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, so the idea there is, is that these people help coach the, the, they're not necessarily designing it for them. They are coaching the educational, they're, they're coaching the teacher and how to design the instruction. Does that sound fair and right? Yes, correct. And so with that shift in coaching, I feel like that same shift is happening and uh, at a much slower rate, but happening um, when it comes to special education and the, the therapy minutes, you know, um, our related service minutes and um, our our minutes that go on IEPs are so often meant to be direct instruction. Uh, the special ed teacher spending minutes with a student, the speech therapist spending minutes with a student. Well, here in uh, I think was something that is uh, I think some of some of us knew this ahead of time, and again the great big spotlight was shined on it uh, during the pandemic was that 
we really need to be educating parents. You know, these skills, um, these skills that it takes to coach a parent through how to help their students become better learners. Again, is really specific to AAC, but other technology skills, other reading skills, other math skills, uh, STEM, a- a- anything. If we can help the parents become better at that, then those are the force that lives with them, with the students all the time. They're the force that is with them beyond education, like after their K-12 experience. Um, so if we can spend our time coaching them and that might mean looking at our IEPs and helping facilitate those conversations, um, you know, just putting that bug in ears. Well, you know what, what if we cut back on the number of minutes we were doing direct instruction and we were doing more consulting or coaching mom or dad with you and we help build up your skills, you know, your executive functioning skills. How do you manage your day? Uh, how does he, how, how does he or she or they manage their, their, um, their learning environment so that they can learn how to become expert learners, you know? Right. And so then essentially the parents um, can become like the teacher and can provide that same type of instruction. That's a great point. Yes. And really know, like, you know, I mean, you, you've seen it, I'm sure a million times, like parents like want to jump in and give the answer. Let's coach them. You can't just tell them, Hey mom, don't jump in and give them the answer. That's not, that doesn't register. It's a skill right. to, to provide that wait time to stop and reflect. And so let's give them that experience. Okay, mom, let's coach you through it in all the ways we've, we've learned to coach and your, 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 your designers, what'd you call them? Technology designers, classroom classroom technology technology designers. (laughs) They, I bet you they've had some practice doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. um, When we sent out a a needs assessment to uh, our teachers to say, you know, what's going well with virtual learning, what's not going so well. That was one of the things that a lot of people said is, parents are, we don't have an accurate picture of how the students are doing because parents are either helping too much or not there at all. And so that parent piece is, I think, really critical. I agree with you about that. So what other thoughts or challenges do you feel that you face? Well, um, the ones that I mentioned were like the top three. Um, I'm not sure... I don't know how do you like how do you support the teachers in your in your district like that part about I want to be supportive I have a lot of great ideas and resources for them but at the same time as you know training people on technology is not something that you know most skills take longer than just like a minute of your time you know it, and it takes repeated practice and so um, getting them to sort of buy in to this idea that there are some things that could really make your life easier and your students' lives easier. And then getting them to spend that time because that, I, I, I don't know how else, I feel like that's an unavoidable thing. They, they're gonna have to spend time to learn new things and then practice those new things and then implement them and figuring out a way to support them in doing that. I think that's a huge challenge. And do you have any insight on that? Yeah. So I think, so I'll tell you, you asked how it works in our neck of the woods. We do have our assistive technology team. So in our neck of the woods, Mm -hmm. we we have a large school district that has, um, 
you know, maybe 90, I lose track every year, maybe 93, 94 schools in our county-based system. So we have uh, nine, uh, we call them CIFATs, Specialized Instructional Facilitators for Assistive Technology. And that's the assistive, that's the evolution of the assistive technology team that I mentioned earlier. Um, And the the role that they play is that they are sort of um, assigned to uh, roughly 10 of those 90 schools, right? Nine of us, there's 90 schools roughly, you know, Um, and they are meant to be, uh, again, experienced designers. Let me help you figure out what the experience you're trying to design, and I'll help you make it more accessible, more inclusive. And they, we really... um, stress being like a face that you can call and, and like, Hey, I'm just your buddy, you know, well, we'll just, it's not like some form you have to fill out to get help. It's just email me and we'll set up a time and we'll chat, you know, now, so do you, so let me ask in your school district, do you have a team like that, whether they're assistive technology or inclusive design, which I just love your job title, by the way, like that, the ideas, it really puts the center, not on the technology, but on the inclusion piece. And I just love that. Yeah, me too. Um, in terms of assistive technology, we do have, I think, uh, only one person for our district who's in charge of assistive technology. Um, and I've coordinated with her some, but um, I think kind of what you're talking about is more the classroom technology designer. That's the person that if somebody has a question about how to integrate technology into their lessons or their instruction, but it's not so much the accessibility piece. It's just like the technology piece, but that's the closest thing that I can think of as to what you described in terms of like, Hey, call me, we'll set up something and I'll help you with that. Um, And I'm trying to be that person too, but thank you for mentioning that because I think that that really will help me kind of, you know, part of it is just because I'm so new. So a lot of people don't know that I'm here. So just getting the word out and trying to make sure that they do feel that way that, you know, and I do have some teachers that are like, I'm really looking for this specific virtual manipulative, you know, and I've already looked and I've Googled and I can't find one without ads, you know, can you help me? So, you know, that, that type of thing. So uh, I have done that a little bit, but I I hope that that can be more like that in the future. So let me tell you a quick story. Um, So for years we work, I mean, they're still my closest partners in, you know, I work in special education, which is in a different department than the Department of Instruction, which is where those, you know, our IFTs, your, you know, classroom technology designers uh, work, right? And for years we've worked hand in hand with them, doing presentations together, um, Mm -hmm. always um, like, hey, let's partner up. Hey, can we brainstorm together? Um, And, and where that has evolved, right, is that once upon a time, so read and write for Google Chrome is our text-to-speech tool. We've had it for many, many years. It's that tier one tool that I'm talking about. Again, I'm not necessarily advocating for that tool. Do your homework and figure out what works best for your neck of the sure. woods, right? Um, but um, when we started, it was it was always thought of as a tier three tool, and you had needed the AT people to come out and teach you how to do it. But where we live now, because it is available to everybody, is those people own it, and they talk about it, and they're the ones sharing about it. And that um, 
that uh, textbook committee that I was talking about, we partnered with a bunch of them to review the materials for the, the digital materials. And all of them were talking about, uh, you know, I really didn't like how it worked with Read and Write. It didn't, this particular tool. They were having those dis discussions. So it took time, but I feel like that's your build capacity target audience right there is if I could teach these people about accessibility and inclusion and get them asking the teachers the right questions, that's how your sustainable change can really happen. Yeah, that's great advice. And I will definitely act on that. Thank you. Julia, something else that I think they can really help with is the design, since their name is design, the design mm -hmm. of the instruction in general. So tell me if this resonates at all. Like when I went to school, the experience, and so I have a high school student and a middle school student here, my own kids, much of their experience looks like this, whether it was in classroom or distance learning, whether in person or distance learning go into the room, whether it's Zoom or physical room, do 15, 20, 30, 35 minutes of listening to the teacher, do some sort of instruction, then do some sort of maybe independent work, then repeat back what the student has, what the teacher has expressed in some way, maybe with the subtext that there's some sort of project going on that you work on in free time. Does that sound about right for many of the instructional lessons that are designed or is that shifted in your neck of the woods? Um, I've done some virtual learning observations and I can say that it's different everywhere and that different, it's different for everybody's experience level. I have seen some lessons that are like that, but um, I've also seen, especially in our uh, special education classes that are smaller, uh, there's a lot more personalized learning going on, strengths-based um, you know, interest-based types of things and a lot of student choice in terms of like, you know, oh, well, what do you, you know, what else could we do to, to work on this skill or, um, so I do see some of that, but I've also seen a lot of, a lot of other things too. So I think, that's, and that's, um, that's maybe my goal is to like help people understand how important some of those other aspects are of online learning in terms of choice and, you know, engagement and variety and things like that, just like we would, you know, but you also have that in the class, in the regular classroom too, right? Not just in online learning. Some classrooms that you go into, you listen to the teacher for 35 minutes, you do an independent work activity, you leave, you know, and so, but, and some people have tried to carry that over into online learning and it just, just trying to, work on a better way. Mm -hmm. so. so what would be the better way? What uh, what are some advice what advice do you give to to teachers now about how they might design their instruction differently? Well, I'm definitely um working on ways to be engaging um engaging kids with different games or different structures to their activities. I don't know if you've uh I mean I'm sure you have, but I don't know if other people have heard of like flippity.net. Oh yeah. Um oh yeah. <laughs> Flippity has just like you can take um a lesson that you have in mind. You can look through it, it can be overwhelming because there's a lot of choices, but I think that's great about Flippity is you have so many different choices for how you could teach that same concept in a game or in a choice board or in, you know, there's just the possibilities are endless. And so giving them not just that same old thing, but, and 
teaching them that like we're gonna try something new and that's that's okay it might not work out and um, that's just all part of the learning process but um, definitely incorporating a variety of engagement strategies whether it's through the structure whether it's through an activity or even there's some extensions you know that you can add sound effects or um, confetti to your screen <laughs> those types of things are always fun um, so engagement and then I think structure is also really important um, as much as you do want to provide variety and things like that you always want students to know what to expect when they enter your virtual classroom and um, having schedules just like in a regular classroom schedules support all of our learners to know what they're doing what the expectations are and how long they're going to have to do it especially if it's not a preferred activity um, so having schedules having timers those types of things um, can be implemented in a virtual classroom as well and it it does take a little bit of extra work but it will save you time in the virtual classroom because you can just move through the activities so much more efficiently when you have that structure in place and when kids kids know what to expect so really focusing on uh, engagement and structure the content for the most part should be the same you know as the as the regular classroom so if you have a seasoned teacher they should be familiar with the content but just taking that content and you know making it more accessible for a virtual classroom so making it more engaging and putting it into a virtual structure i think that's kind of what i'm focusing on and what my advice would be Man, we are kindred spirits. I'm so glad that we connected because, yeah, you you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, that's exactly what we've been trying to say to the teachers as well, where it's maybe like organized chaos. Chaos <laughs> is a scary word to some people, but it's organized choice, you know? Um, yeah. And a, a piece that I will add in there is that reflective piece, meaning mm. I've selected, okay, I've had these choices. Now I've, I, 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 maybe I've come from a classroom or an experience where I didn't have a lot of choices. We're asking you now to create choices. Students have choices and they don't know what to pick and maybe they pick wrong, you know? And I, I feel like that's part of like, the benefit of online learning and distance learning is I can learn on my bed. I can learn at my desk. I can learn under my desk. I can learn on the couch. Okay, do that. How did that Make, work? Yeah. Yes, let's <laughs> talk about that. Where? What did you think about how that worked? I feel like that's such an important piece that often gets overlooked. Yeah, and I again, I, I can see how there's some teachers that are really good about that, even in the regular classroom, and they can be very reflective both on their own and then they can help their students reflect like and ultimately that metacognition thinking about thinking how did it go um what what did i learn from this experience that is like the heart of so many different important skills for for building our students and so i think that it's definitely important to carry that into the virtual and that can be scary you know asking asking for feedback especially when a lot of teachers are not comfortable and this is something new, but I think also inviting them to feel that same, like, you know, we're all in this together. This is something new for us. We're going to try it. We're going to, you know, reflect and see how it went and then make changes and hopefully improve. Um, and that can be done from a teacher's perspective as well as from a student's perspective, I think. Can I ask you another question here? Sure. What's project-based learning like in your neck of the woods? Have you have have any of your teachers kind of dipped their toe in those waters, or has it been an initiative in your area, or what's that like? So I can say that our district um, provides unit plans for our um, for our teachers and for our schools, and normally at the end of each unit plan, where there would be an assessment, there's also usually um, there's an option 
that the district has planned if you wanted to do a project instead of the assessment. Does that make sense? Like you can do an assessment and maybe you could also do it in combination, but here's a recommended project that you could do to, to um, assess these same skills that we just learned during this unit. Mm -hmm. You could Im implement this project with the students. Now, to be honest, I haven't seen a lot of people doing that virtually. Um, I think it can be done. It requires knowledge of some, you know, pretty good knowledge about the collaboration tools. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a good point. I can probably, you know, work with work with some teachers on that, it, working on collaborating and project-based learning virtually. I, I think that might scare some people, but I think that that's that is really important. Well, I find the project-based learning in our neck of the woods. It's been a it's been a focus for maybe. Well, our superintendent just recently uh, left and actually went to Texas. Oh. <laughs> um, um, and so uh, near the Houston area. Um, but he, when he came to our, our school district, he brought with him this drive for project-based learning. Mm -hmm. And at the heart of project-based learning is this, um, not necessarily the product that you create at the end, but the reflective question that you ask or the authentic question you ask at the beginning. And I feel like, for students in special education uh, and maybe uh, online learning as well, um, students in special education who are doing online learning, having some sort of authentic problem that they're solving, like like my daughter, for instance, I like to use this as an example. When my daughter is in second grade, all the second grade students participated in a, um, uh, the bees are dying. I, I tell the story, I won't give you the whole story, but the bees are dying, how can we help save them? And the teachers did this thing where they got all the students wrapped around their figure, like we gotta help save the bees. You know, It's not hard to get second graders like, trying to solve some sort of problem like that about saving animals. Do you know what I mean? Um, you can imagine the the drive if it was like, there, there are puppies in the puppy shelter that can't find homes. What are we going to do? I don't know. What are we going to do? And now we're writing about it. We're making videos. We're creating um, uh, campaigns and we're solving a problem. And it's not, uh, it starts with an authentic problem. How do we help puppies? Do you know what I mean? Right. And, and then this project evolves around it. And I feel like that is um, something that has inclusion baked in and those choices baked in is like, well, how are we going to, if you just ask the students, well, how are we going to so help the puppies? You know, maybe we can make videos. Sure. Let's make videos. Maybe we can make a poster. Yeah. Let's make a poster. And students with disabilities students kind of fit right in because they get, everyone gets the choice. It's not, it's not, Hey, just you who has a disability gets a choice. Everyone has a choice how they're going to help solve that problem. And I think that authentic piece that you mentioned, I think that's really important, even more so than in the classroom. I think um, that relevant, authentic, because if they weren't motivated to do it in the classroom, you know, you still, you know, where else are they going to go? They, they still had to do it or whatever, and that may or may not have been successful. But motivation in virtual learning is like a huge thing. And one way to increase that motivation is to make these problems that we're solving authentic and real and so that the kids are motivated to really um you know solve them and and work and do the work that they need to do because um, without that motivation they just won't show up or they won't participate and that that is a huge problem for us as well so i think it, it we saw that too that there's a it helps sustain the um the the engagement piece you know so much of the engagement um that 
that technology can do, uh, the increased engagement is fleeting. You know what I mean? You can yes. only play so many cahoots before it's like, oh, cahoot again? You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. I've seen yes. the, I know, I know that, that extension you're talking about with the little, uh, what's it called? Boom or something where like you mentioned the confetti, mm -hmm. like you can right. only do that so many times. <laughs> But the before it's like, yep, I've seen the confetti gun again, you right. know, like, um, yeah. and it's often on the teacher to make it engaging. But when right. you have that authentic problem, the sustainability, well, I guess the puppies aren't going to find home. I mean, you wouldn't guilt them right. like that, but you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, yeah, I, I got to do this or the puppies aren't going to have homes. Right. The bees are going to die. There's that longevity there um, because you've changed it from engagement to empowerment. I'm empowering you to solve this problem. And you're going to want to, you're going to get addicted to doing that, you know? And the other thing about that is that, you know, that's kind of how life works. We want to solve problems. That's how our brain is wired to solve problems. And so that in itself is, is, is motivating. And it's, that's what makes that kind of experience relevant is, you know, how are we really preparing kids for life beyond school? Well, what kind of problems are we are we working with them to solve? How, how are they solving problems? And are they going to be able to solve these problems, you know, when they, when they need to in real life? So yeah, that's important. Julie, I said one last question, but I actually do have one last question. So <laughs> okay. this, a, a question that I ask, again, all the other teachers that I, that I work with and is, you know, what do kids miss most about in-person learning? And I feel like that's something you're going to have to wrestle with if you have kids that are predominantly doing online learning, right? So what is it do you feel like kids miss miss most in in-person learning? Um, you're talking about the ones who are doing online learning. What do they miss about in-person learning? I definitely think from what I hear from both teachers and students is, you know, uh, as having a, a stepson who did, uh, virtual learning as well. He was like, I just want to see my friends and I want to be able to talk to them. And one thing I've tried to coach teachers on is give kids time to talk. Like, and it doesn't even have to be academic talk. Like some, I know some teachers who would use that as an incentive. Okay. Like if we get through all of our academic work, I'm going to give you time in breakout rooms with a partner, you know, to talk at the end. And you're just going to have five minutes to talk to that partner. And that was what they looked forward to every day was just talking to that person about whatever they wanted. It didn't have to be school. And it's so much more fun now because you're at home. So you can show them your pet or you can show them what you drew, or you can show them so many things and they want those social connections. And I think, um, for some teachers, it's really hard for them to, you know, because, oh, you know, we, we have to address learning loss. We have to make sure that our, not, our kids are not falling behind academically. So we got to make the most of this Zoom session or whatever. But like letting kids just have time to talk. I think that's one thing that our kids really miss is just that social interaction piece. And so... So my wife is a is a special ed well she's a dean at our local high school oh. and I don't know if this is her phrase or if it's the principal at that school but I hear her say it quite quite a bit and it's connection over content you know mm -hmm. connect with the students and let the let the students connect with each other um, and it's not surprising to hear you say that socialization re, um, you know being social relationships my friends man I miss my friends I just want to hang out with my friends and I feel like that is something um, we can think about as educators is that, well, if that's what kids miss the most about school, we could just give them, we could, we can solve that by figuring out how we could get them together for sleepovers. Like what is it about the academics or the educational experience that is truly unique? And I feel like a challenge in front of you, Julia, would be 
how do we get them access to, like, what are some things you can only do in school? Like not only are most, it's, it's much easier to do in school. And like things that jump to my mind are like 3D printers, you know, like kids don't, most kids don't have a 3D printer at their house. So when they're doing those sort of STEM projects, sure, they can work on Thingiverse and they can build something in Tinkercad and, you know, they can do stuff like that but they can't actually print it. You know what I mean? That's something you have to do in the building or like the tangible robots. Do you know what I mean? Like that are mm -hmm. driving around. I, most kids don't have those at home. And so right. I feel like that is a challenge that I, that, that would be um, unique to your position is those are certain things that you, I want them to come into the building for. I'd want them to have some sort of experience where it is tangible so that maybe it's, not a hundred percent online. Maybe it's ninety-five percent online, and occasionally you do come in to have these sorts of experiences. You know um, mm -hmm. that you just can't replicate easily in an online environment. I mean, sure, there's simulations and there's other cool things you can do, but there's some stuff right. that's just hands-on. You know, like mm -hmm. I hear science all the time. Well, you know, you bring them in for a science lab. I think there's virtual tools that we could use to replicate that, but there's some right. things that 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 I don't know, I'd find challenge. I don't know. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I, I think that that there is that part. We, I don't know if that would work out because I think that the student at this point, because we do have many students who have come back um, and are going and are going to school in person, but we do have some students who the parents have already said we're not coming back and it's for, for health reasons. And so mm -hmm. I would struggle to try to address those reasons in those experiences for sure. But it is definitely something to keep in mind is, you know, what can they only get at school or what, what, what does school best provide? Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that, I mean, clearly if they have health reasons and they don't want to, there isn't, right. a, you know, you don't bring them in for that. But when we were talking, when we first started out talking about like, we all know those kids that just did better online mm -hmm. you know they just yeah. do better in this maybe they do better in a mostly online environment and and so that so that we have the conversation that it's you know what there are occasionally times when maybe we do want to to have an in-person experience just mm -hmm. like an in-person experience you know maybe there's a couple times where we do want to have an online experience you know it's not yeah. an all or nothing sort of thing um it's a most you know <laughs> yeah i like that well, Julia, is there anything else um, that we should talk about or any questions you have? Did I hit everything that you mentioned? Did we? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think you've given me a lot to think about and some really good ideas, and I really appreciate that. So, no, I mean, I can't think of anything else at this time, but I might email you if I have time to process this more and, and think of anything else. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, feel free to um, to reach out anytime. You know, we don't have to jump on a call either. I can email back and forth too. Okay. <laughs> I just thought it would be fun to record because I think there's other people in these same boats, you know, so why not help other people if they can listen to this, you know? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you for talking with tech. I'm Chris Bouguet with Julia James. And thank you so much. <laughs>